Wajik. Women and gender in China. You're listening to the first episode of the Wajik podcast series, recorded from SOAS Radio, London. Launched in September 2017, Wajik, or Women and Gender in China, is a collaborative blog, social media, and now podcast project that aims to provide a dedicated and accessible space for commentary about gender, sexuality, and feminisms in China. This podcast is part of Wajik's fourth blog issue, which asks the question, what is a Chinese woman artist? We're very lucky to be joined in the SOAS Radio studio today by Monica Merlin, who is an art historian and the program leader for the MA Contemporary Arts China at Birmingham School of Art. Our second guest is Yi Dai. Yi Dai is an independent artist based in London and a graduate of Central St. Martins and works on small-scale mixed-media installations. We're also joined over the phone by Christina Yuanzi Cheng. Christina joined the Gender, Women and Sexuality Studies Department at the University of Washington in 2016, and she's since been developing research on a decolonial feminist analysis of visual art that is currently being produced in mainland China and Hong Kong. We're joined also by Louise Guest in Sydney. Louise is a writer, researcher and educator. Her book, Half the Sky, is based on interviews with more than 30 contemporary artists. And last but not least, my co-host, Ren Yuan. Yuan is a bilingual journalist and broadcaster who has written extensively on China for international publications such as The Guardian and The Telegraph. I'm Tessa, your co-host, and I'm now going to hand over to you, Yuan, to kick off the discussion. Thank you very much for the introduction. That was my co-host, Tessa Chiu, and welcome to all of our guests on the show today. Let's start with you, Monica. Is women's art a distinct category in Chinese art history? And would you say that women artists are doing significantly different things to their male peers? Yeah, so um, if we look at women's art and Chinese new Yishu, we see that particularly in the 1990s, there's the, uh, the use of this critical category, um, women's art, new Yishu, yeah. that starts to become more and more uh, used and evident in the, in the work of curators, yeah. particularly curators and our critics in the 1990s. If we look at women practicing performance art and men practicing performance art, we see two very different timelines. So, you know, the question is like, why is it that women started to practice performance art, particularly after 2000, 2001? You know, the height of performance art in China is in the 1990s uh, with the artists in the Beijing East Village, for instance. But we have very few women doing performance art. And you see an engagement with the body as a medium for art, particularly from 2001. The work of uh, Chen Lingyang, for instance, who is not a performance art per se, but she's using her body in photography Mm -hmm. with the 12 Flower Months um, series of pictures that she took of her menstruating body. Mm -hmm. So from that on to uh, He Chen Yao's performance, Opening the Great Wall in 2001, when she goes half naked walking on the Great Wall. All these are the beginning of, of an engagement with the body that we don't really see before. So do you think that's the beginning of contemporary art in China? Well, that's another big debate, <laughs> but I would, I would say that contemporary art um, in China goes back to the 1970s mm-hmm. and uh, the first um, groups and whether you, you want to call them avant-garde and underground groups of the early, mid-1970s who were already working with um, artistic languages that opposed propaganda art and uh, mm. a socialist realist art that was um, 
wanted by the party yeah. in the 1970s until things change in 1978-79. Yeah. So that's during the Cultural Revolution. Yeah, in a very subterranean way, right, underground okay. way, yeah. Yeah. working. Um, and, so, and so whatever they were doing was not possible actually to be shown right. to to the general public because of the nature of what they were doing, yeah. particularly in painting. So they, they would paint landscapes and still life and, you know, daily scenes yeah. that were completely outside the boundaries of what um, uh, the party would have wanted. Right. Some of them were trained in art academies. So within the official machines of um, art making and production during the Maoist era, but then they would make art in the privacy of the home. Yeah. So some of the things you talked about, for example, the the use of nudity and the use of the, the woman's body, do you think those artists would identify themselves as feminist artists? Well, that's again a tricky and difficult question that has been asked to uh, women, Chinese women artists themselves, and and you have a range of, of answers, and those answers sometimes change over time as well. For instance, uh, an important artist that started to work with installation art in the 1990s, Lin Tianmiao, uh, was often engaging with subjects and materials that were very much attached to ideas of womanhood. And at the very beginning, she completely denied an attachment or an attribution to feminist ideas. But then she has been slowly changing her mind about it. And she's been increasingly working with gender biases of uh, Chinese language, for instance. Louise, if I could also bring you in here, is that also your experience, this rejection of the label feminist artist? I can only comment in terms of the artists that I've had conversations with on the subject. And many artists have expressed a degree of discomfort about what they see as um, the aggressive nature of Western feminism. And that's, you know, literally a direct quote from a number of conversations I've had with artists in China. So as Monica was saying earlier, it is very complex and there is a very specific history of Chinese feminism that is certainly as long, if not longer, than the history of Western feminism, um, but has had a very different trajectory. So I think some of the complexity of that is something that we need to bear in mind when we're talking about how Chinese women artists might see themselves or not see themselves as feminist. Talking about feminist history in China, obviously one big part of that is what you might refer to as state-sponsored feminism. Or well, I'm actually referring to, to earlier history than that, that, that goes right back to the Qing dynasty and the, the late Qing and the uh, May the 4th movement where there were many women working alongside their their male comrades there and there was a you know a, a degree of publishing of feminist writing at that time but what you're referring to of course after 1949 is the the uh, state and the party version of feminism where there was a real attempt to erase them um, and that is something that I think 
in in a degree to a degree is uh, an explanation for the the discomfort or the weariness with which a number of women now approach the label of feminism. Obviously, Chairman Mao said that women, female comrades, would hold up half the sky. And a lot of that contributed to giving women the right to work, come out of the home and not have bound feet, for example. So obviously that did something to liberate women. But in terms of identity, none of that was self-sought. Do you think that because of this imposed idea of women as workers, soldiers and farmers, that actually now are reverting back to the traditional, the feminine, the home, how women see themselves individually rather as part of the state? I think it probably has more to do with that idea of the individual um, and particularly of women who had experience of high socialism or the period of collectivism. For the artists that I wrote about for the recent Wajik article, um, none of whom would explicitly identify themselves as feminist, they all um, certainly would agree that they're interested in representing ideas about women and Chinese women's history in their work, sometimes very personal. So Gaorong, for example, her work is, is very particularly or was in, the, in that particular period a few years ago, very much about her own history and the history of her mother and her grandmother. Uh, so she decided to use embroidery as her technique and her material as a really appropriate way to convey those ideas. But it would be a mistake to see it as very much aligned with perhaps the, the way that women feminist artists in the 70s used um, embroidery or textiles as a very deliberate reference to women's craft practices. Although Gaorong did say to me that she was inspired by Tracy Emin when she was a student and really loved her applique works. Some, I read somewhere about Tracy Emin has done embroidered chairs and very tactile mm. art and actually some of it seems quite similar in the use of the bedroom and the use of physical things. Do you think there's there is that conscious association with Tracy Emin? I don't think it's a conscious alliance. I think as a student, Garong discovered the work of, of Tracy Emin and was really interested in that. But I think that's just one of many possible influences on her work. And when she speaks about her practice, she's much more likely to speak about her own grandmother, who in fact survived the Cultural Revolution by selling her embroidery to support the seven children. It's really interesting, this um, idea of the private life and looking to family history, because that's obviously something that was lost. A lot of that was lost during the Cultural Revolution and the sense of private space was completely erased in many cases. Are there also male artists who are doing similar things and looking at it? Or is this something distinct to women artists in China? In my experience, and certainly from my research of the White Rabbit Collection, which um, is provides, I think, a really good um, picture of 21st century Chinese art, I think that this particular kind of expression is very much a feature of work by women artists. Um, which is not to say male artists are not also investigating folk art or investigating family history. And, and one example of that would be an artist like Chen Yujin, very focused on the history of his family and 
diasporic generations of his family from southern China. But I think that with Thai Min in particular and her use of washboards that she collected from rural women, she's very conscious of the fact that by making rubbings of those, she is evoking, for example, the the um, bailing in Xi'an and the practice of making rubbings from the stone carvings in the past. So she's very deliberately elevating that practice. Um, and she talks about how she's taking a women's history and a really humble, very everyday object, and she's elevating it into the sphere of fine art very deliberately. And she also is very conscious of the fact that she is referencing the way that Chinese artists like Zhu Bing reinvigorated the idea of the book. So she's turning these washboard rubbings and prints into uh, handmade books as well and creating books of, of women. Um, if I could bring in Christina, you've written many essays on prominent woman writer and curator Liao Wen, who is seen as a figure who began the discourse about women's art in China in the early 1990s. And um, some of the themes included in some of her discussions and some of her work is about women's role in art in what was back then, I think in the mid 80s and the early 90s, a very male dominated art circle. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what allowed her to develop her research, what triggered it and what it meant in the socio-political period that it was the tail end era of communist China? Yeah, I think uh, for Liao Wen, it's part of just talking about her work in the early 90s and sort of her discovery of this phenomenon where a lot of women artists were creating work from their own experiences and their own gender identities. Um, one of the the visual motifs that she noted was that there was a sort of entanglement that kept reoccurring in installation art and painting in lots of different mediums. And in her role as a curator and a writer at the time, this was something that she thought was important to bring to the fore in the art scene that was really burgeoning and vibrant at the time. A lot of this entanglement, as she talks about, and she sees as a visual motif, she interprets it as this sense of contradiction that, you know, women are supposed to be liberated now. This was supposed to be this time where women and men are equal, and yet women are still expected to fulfill the duties of the home and also work in the public sphere. Her work really is about tracing the history. So she goes back into the imperial dynastic period where there is this phenomenon of Guigohua, which is this chamber painting tradition where it, um, a lot of women artists in earlier stages of Qing Dynasty produced work that fit a certain idea of the feminine, you know, birds and flowers and um, about this ideal notion of the women being in these cloistered chambers moving through to this era of propaganda art in a sense that art and the politics and the aims of the politics of the time which was the establishment of the Chinese Communist Party and the People's Republic of China as a nation were hand in hand and so there's this layer of propaganda art and there's um, this idea that women should no longer uh, be confined to the home there's this there's this state level idea that women should hold up half the sky and should 
also be be as active and as contributive in the public sphere as men. And it's this entanglement in ideologies versus reality, the home versus the public um, that was being expressed in the works of Taijin and Bing Tianmiao and many others. I think you're right that in that this ideology and the dichotomy of on the surface women doing everything that men could do but in the home they were still expected to have children and to be married and that probably never changed in the private sphere kind of a double burden as it were so women were essentially doing everything but also facing the same discriminations they faced pre the Mao era Yes, very much so. And so a lot of times the, the artwork and also even this hesitance to talk about women's art or feminist art, a lot of it comes with negotiating the intricacies and the complexities of having these transnational lines of feminism. For people who aren't that familiar with the Cultural Revolution and the, the kind of art, we're talking about two different types. So we're talking about the experimentation and the erasing of gender on one side that the state wanted for their own uh, machinery, I guess. And then earlier, Monica was talking about underground, people getting together in people's homes, having these absolutely. creative sessions. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, the house and the, the home, um, the flats of these um, individuals, uh, uh, candlelight in night gatherings is very much what comes out from these narrations of, yeah. uh, you know, some of those intellectuals and, yeah. and uh, artists still alive today. But this, again, I think is a new chunk of research that needs more investigation and is really coming out more and more now. Even for a lot of Chinese people, the idea that during the Cultural Revolution, there was no underground, there were no alternative thoughts. So it's really interesting, actually, in many spheres, whether it's religion or art, the narrative that there was a lot more going on than it seems on the surface and obviously not in line with the official narrative. Um, if we move on to Yi Dai, uh, who is um, a graduate, am I right, of Central St. Martin Academy of Art. So now we've been talking about very distinct types of arts and groups of artists and research into the contemporary artists as a genre, but there's a trend and it's increasingly the case that a lot of young artists are graduating from these very well-established, very prestigious schools in the UK and Europe in in America. There's, I think there was an article which called, was the Royal Academy, the finishing school of Chinese art students. So increasingly, we're not talking about the kind of artist who led a fringe artist life. We're increasingly talking about the urban middle class artists who are coming over as, as young as 16 or even younger. And their formative years as an artist and as an art student are primarily in the West. So it'd be really interesting to talk to you about your thoughts with reference to the artists we've talked about and how whether you identify with them. You grew up uh, in Hunan, yeah. in the city. And as a woman, mm. do you identify yourself as a woman artist? Um, it's a, yeah, it's a very complex question because um, a lot of people say that the differences between people from rural areas in China and urban areas in China are actually bigger than the differences between women and men in China. Um, and that's a very interesting departure point because if people ask me, um, do you consider yourself as a Chinese woman or female artist? Um, I mean, I would introduce myself as I was born in China and obviously people can see I'm a woman, but it's not um, 
combination of adjective and noun that I would constantly use to identify myself or to introduce myself. Mm-hmm. And obviously, the background of Chinese art and the history of it has always been informative to my work. But I think the recent or younger generation of Chinese artists don't necessarily try to advertise themselves with the singular national identity or a singular gender identity. Um, And that's not necessarily because we're trying to reject the idea, but more so just as a symptom of globalization, because people might spend their life in different areas of the world, but also even if you spend all your life in China being educated in the Chinese academies, you still read and you get exposure to all sorts of information internationally. So you don't see yourself as much of a, you know, predefined Chinese figure anymore. So that could open up to some more discussion, perhaps, on, you know, how the younger generation kind of perceive themselves. Mm. To look at some of your art, one, um, I think it's called Nocturne. Some people have said that there are obvious traces, obvious reflections of women identity. I think you use hair and you use uh, stockings in there. Is that your expression of women's art, feminist art, or is it completely separate to any of that? That's a very good example because um, if you look at the rest of my work, you probably find um, none of the other projects are directly visually relevant to the one that you just mentioned. Um, They might have similar visual vocabularies, but they might explore very different areas and different things. And I think that's how a lot of the younger generation artists work, is that you um, your work's always a little bit about yourself and your thoughts at the moment, but um, we don't really try to, you know, predefine ourselves within the boundary of one thing, such as feminism or one thing as gender. Um, because in a way that the visual medium, I mean, as an artist, from an artist's point of view, they're just uh, a medium which helps you express your opinions or your feelings. They're not necessarily um, trying to advertise. I mean, maybe some artists do. I personally don't try to, you know, um, be very loud about Mm. one particular slogan or one particular Mm. thing that might you know, might be a word or a phrase that creates a lot of sensation. So I don't tend to work in that manner. And actually, um, from an artist's point of view, um, the process of making work is not always in the logical sequence. It doesn't always happen like you want to express something and secondly, you go and find material to express it and then eventually you reach a product a product um, but more so it happens in an organic way and sometimes the end product might inform yourself of something that you haven't actually thought about or planned about in the beginning mm. so we were both actually grew up in a period of very rapid change the 80s the 90s especially the late 90s when consumerism started to evolve the early millennium the chocolate brands and mm-hmm. were coming into China a lot of the artists for example um, Dong Yuan and Gao Rong if you look at their work they're very reminiscent of the period prior to that and it was very distinct yeah. because of this lack of globalization so inside their parents homes or their grandparents homes I look at that and I can see you know my own home it's the same branded hot water bottle the yeah. same duvet on the and it's very evocative 
the reason for that is because it was a very narrow choice of consumer products back then. Yes. Do you relate to it? And do you think that's something that you would one day like to explore? Um, definitely, because um, I think those objects you just talked about kind of function as an entity that carries some sort of a collective memory, I mm. guess. And that's always the thing that a lot of artists are interested in. Mm. Um, you know, the theme of memory and remembering but I mean I, I don't I can't really say um, where myself would go in terms of that um, but I feel a lot of times artists and art is sort of a catalyst yeah. for people to open up more conversations about the subject rather yeah. than um, you know an illustration of the time yeah like do you, yeah I mean do you feel that there is pressure to be distinctive, given place that China is at the moment, do you feel like you need identity to thrive in the international market as a as a Chinese artist or mm. as someone with a Chinese background? Yeah, yeah, that's um, a topic that people often discuss about, you know, China or Africa right now or Middle East. Um, and I remember having a conversation with an artist from Nigeria once, and she told me that she was quite upset about people saying African art or trying to curate a show called New Africa or something like that, because she said that there are 70 languages in Nigeria, and how can you even define, you know, Nigerian art? And then, you know, trying to say African art is even more almost offensive to her. Well, to me, it's a, a, I don't know, I guess it depends on the personality. I don't see as offensive if try, people try to say Chinese art as a title mm. but I do think that China and Chinese these kind of words really should be more carefully used yeah. because I mean I'm sitting here and talking and I in no way represent any other person in China who is working in the field of art um, and the same way when we talk about Chinese art we're yeah. talking about a huge diverse and group of people especially you mentioned the rural now China is more than 50% urban so again it's changed very quickly so very last if I could throw out this question to the future of Chinese women's art Christine if I could start with you you know where is it going and what are the struggles there's plenty of struggles but um, I feel like there's a trend towards and also um, I would hope to see more of is actually going back into the historical archives and understanding more of Chinese, China's own art history and China's own history of women's movements and feminism and working from that basis instead of constantly evoking, invoking a um, Western feminist history. There was recently an exhibition at the Time Museum in Guangzhou um, called Pan Yuliang, A Journey to Silence. Using Pan Yuliang, which is this really important Chinese modernist uh, painter who uh, was female, and using her as a platform to explore these uh, history, to explore her archive, to explore transnational migration. And so it talks about gender, but gender isn't just one discrete category that's actually constantly influencing almost everything we do. If I bring in Louise, what, what do you think of that, given that you've, you've written about the three artists we talked about and that you are constantly in exchange with Chinese young artists? I, I think the, the key phrase from our whole conversation is probably complicating the narrative. One of the issues for me, of course, is that the younger generation of artists do uh, often tend to speak of themselves 
as less Chinese and more global. And while, of course, that's true and globalization is undeniable, I think we need to be wary and realize that in some cases, um, international art or global art, in a way, is shorthand for Western contemporary art. And I think it's that idea of the, the constant ebb and flow um, between China and the West and the influence, of course, that China has had on the West historically and, and still today is a really important part of that narrative. But certainly from what I see, young artists are doing absolutely extraordinary things. And I'm thinking particularly here of an artist such as Lu Yang, uh, the, the new media artist who um, is is quite a, a pioneer in terms of really ambitious animation work that's dealing with themes of religion and medicine and biology. And she is interested in breaking down all boundaries and all binaries, including gender binaries. So her avatar in a lot of her works is a, a non-gendered human. Um, and I think that perhaps is also a key to where we might be heading in the future. The, the environment and trying the landscape for a young artist, as you said, trying to complicate things, trying to touch on topics that have not been touched on before. A lot of people would think there would be a lot of censorship around creative industries. Do you think that is something to be wary of? I think, again, that's uh, something that's far more complex than many people in the West would, would realise. And um, I think that I'm a bit wary of saying anything here because the landscape is changing so fast in China and things are, are perhaps becoming more difficult. But many of the artists that I speak to would say that, in fact, what concerns them more um, than any political censorship or any direct censorship is the enormous pressure of the market and the pressure to produce work of a certain kind and to replicate work that's been successful. Um, and to work in ways that are more market-driven. Um, and that's something that a number of artists have expressed to me as their major concern. Thank you very much. Well, hopefully that um, has provided insight and hopefully there's more breakdown of stereotypes and preconceptions that we talked about. I think this has been very informative. Thank you very much, everyone. So you just listened to the first episode of the Wadjuk podcast series recorded from SOAS Radio in London. You can find us on Twitter at HalfTheSky49, on Facebook women and gender in modern china and the blog is www.wagic.org that's w-a-g-i-c.org my co-host Zhang yuan tweets at girl in beijing monica at m monica and louise at louise guest that's l-u-i-s-e-g-u-e-s-t follow us on social media to find out about the next issue which is titled creative resistance queer activism in china i'm tessa your co-host and once again you've been listening to wagic women and gender in china 